You're about to listen to an Audible original. Immersive audio entertainment like you've never heard before. Discover comedies from some of your favorite stars. Plus more genres you love. All inside the Audible app. But for now, enjoy the ride. The following contains language that some may find offensive. It's hard being black. I've been black for a long time. I'm tired. I'm exhausted. I could go to the emergency hospital right now and just drop dead. What happened? He was tired of being black. They are the greatest pioneers in the history of black comedy. Dolomite is my name and fucking up motherfuckers is my game. Trailblazers, innovators, game changers who set the world on fire with a mic and a spotlight. Was the neighborhood I lived in was so beat up and run down had it not been for the Ku Klux Klan burning crosses on our front lawn, we never would have had no street lights. <laughs> We're taking a deep dive into the lives of black comedy icons who made it to the top on their own terms. Paul Mooney, Flip Wilson, Moms Maybelline, Dick Gregory, Rudy Ray Moore, and the blue record king himself, Red Fox. For years, people going around saying, black is beautiful. They took one look at your family and said, hold everything. Whatever anyone else has done, they did it first. There would be no Medea without Flip Wilson's Geraldine. I got some cash and I know I'm clean. Watch out, Trinidad. Here's Geraldine. Way before Whoopi Goldberg graced the stage, Moms Maybelline was the first female comic ever to headline at Carnegie Hall. I don't want nothing old but some old money. Yeah. I'm the oldest, but I got the youngest idea. Yeah. And every black comedian owes a debt to Dick Gregory, who led the integration of the nightclub scene in the early 60s. There's nothing free anymore. <laughs> nothing. You can't even hate free. Don't you think for one minute all you have to do to join the Ku Klux Klan is hate me? That's money. $250 initiation fee and buy your own sheet. <laughs> Those men and women who believed in themselves enough to say whatever they wanted to say, however they wanted to say it. <laughs> who never backed down and always stood their ground on stage and off. Changing comedy and the world forever. I'm J.B. Smooth, and this is Funny My Way, an Audible original series profiling some of the biggest names in black comedy. In our first episode, we're diving into a comedy great who we only lost in 2021. Paul Mooney was a brilliant comedian. He was pretty much an icon. The real white folks know what I'm talking about. The real white people know. That's why they like to go, they love to look at their family tree. Just look at it. Because if they shake it, a nigga will fall out. <laughs> a comedian whose uncompromising, unapologetic style earned him the title, the godfather of comedy. Who's this white woman supposed to sew the flag? Betsy Ross, that a bitch. Now come on, they had slaves. That bitch was asleep at six. He had a very don't give a fuck attitude. He was daring. He was controversial. Mooney was the first to do it. Mooney broke through the barrier of what was acceptable from a black man standing on stage. This is Funny My Way, Paul Mooney. White folks made up, nigga, and don't want me to say it. Ain't that a bitch? Paul Mooney had an act that was pure dynamite, hot, explosive, and dangerous. No joke went too far, nothing was off limits, and he didn't give a damn who he offended. His bravery to speak his mind emboldened legions of comics who came up behind him. Here's comedian Sandra Bernhardt. He was not going to soft sell it. He was not going to make you feel comfortable. <laughs> make that nigger. Stop saying nigger. <laughs> I'm getting a nigger headache. I can't tell. In his 50-year career, Mooney inspired and kick-started the careers of countless comedians and writers. And we're going to hear from a lot of them on what made this guy so special. Extremely daring, extremely bold, willing to push the envelope. Actor, comedian, and producer Cedric the Entertainer. Sometimes Paul Mooney jokes you don't even get to much later. You'll be like, walked away from it, and then you'll be like, oh, oh, wow. 
oh, that was pretty dope. Like, yeah, I just, I just realized what he was doing right there. Comedian and actor D.L. Hughley. I don't care where I was. I don't care what city I was in. If Paul was there, I knew two things. One, I knew I was going to see him. And the other is I knew it didn't matter how late I got off, he would still be on later. It's August 4th, 1941 in Shreveport, Louisiana. Paul Mooney is born Paul Gladney to Lavoya Ely and George Gladney, both just 16 years old. When Paul is seven, the Ely clan decides to take part in the Great Migration, a mass exodus of black people who leave the Jim Crow South in search of a better life somewhere else. For Paul and his family, that's Oakland, California. This is Professor Bambi Haggins. She teaches about race, class, gender, and sexuality in American comedy at UC Irvine. Paul Mooney came of age during the Black Power Movement in the Civil Rights era and was a man by the time the Black Power Movement was in full force. Paul is brought up mainly by his very loving but very tough grandmother, Amy Ely, better known to pretty much everyone as Mama. Mama teaches Paul to find humor in things that may not seem so funny. Struggle, poverty, racism. She's even the one who gives him the nickname Mooney. Here's comedian Godfrey, known for his Mooney impressions. Throughout the episode, you're going to hear him reading from Paul Mooney's 2007 memoir, Black is the New White. Mama wakes up every morning pondering whose ass she's going to whoop. Mama's always whooping ass. My ass, your ass, the neighbor's kid's ass. That is her reputation. Oh, Paul Mooney often talked about his mama. Actor, stand-up comedian, and Mooney friend, Rolanda Watts. He said she would say, I'm passing out lollipops and whoopings, and I'm fresh out of lollipops. So that in itself is humorous, but I think that that storytelling is part of what made his humor so special. Mama giving an ass whooping. Ain't that funny? because it's expected. Mama getting an ass whooping, now that's hilarious. I learned early on that flipping the world butt backwards and saying the unexpected in the punchline is funny. Actor Rim Brown was a close friend of Paul Mooney. I think Paul's fearlessness came from the complete embrace of his grandmother. Paul was encouraged from a very, very young age to be himself, to be an individual, to be distinct, And so Paul grew up with that. He never was in search of himself. He was always encouraged to be who he was at every stage of his life. When Paul was 14, he and his mother moved out of Mama's house to nearby Berkeley. This is the first time in my young life that I'm away from the constant loving atmosphere that surrounds Mama. So what do I do? I try desperately to find that same level of love elsewhere. And that's when I discover a truth that changes my life. I find out that applause equals love. Seeking out that applause and love, Mooney enters and wins a hambone dance contest at a local movie theater. In that moment, he knows he's born for the stage. What he doesn't expect is becoming a dad to twin boys at the age of 16. I am young and terrified. Mama is furious with me. And my mother, too. It's the early 1960s. And a lot of young men, especially young black men, are being drafted to fight in the war in Vietnam. Mooney's studying at a local community college when he's called to serve and sent to West Germany. Vietnam is starting to ramp up. Black kids die by the dozens over there. Pretty soon it will be by the hundreds. Finally, by the thousands. My sergeant attaches me to a new unit. Airborne. You black motherfucker, he says. We're going to throw you out of an airplane. But Mooney's talents save him from combat. He enters a base talent contest and pulls out his old hambone moves. He's immediately placed on an army entertainment troupe that tours all over Germany. When his tour is up, two years later, Mooney returns to Oakland armed with strong anti-war views that will fuel his activism in years to come. But for now, 
He's just happy to be back home and back on the scene. One night, he sees something that changes his life forever. A performance by comedian Lenny Bruce. Let's see, I'm 35, so I got a chance to taste about 30% of the Negro dues. Um, segregated housing, schooling, the only colleges you could make with CCNY. Circumcised citizens of New York. Antisemitic, that's it, man. Yeah, heavyweight Jew. Author, poet, and human rights activist, Kevin Powell. I don't think it's a coincidence that Lenny, you know, came from a community, a family of folks, you know, out of the Jewish tradition, because they understand oppression, they understand anti-Semitism, they understand what it's like to be marginalized. I think they definitely had an impact on someone like Paul Mooney. I think Lenny Bruce definitely did, because, you know, if this guy can do it, what Lenny Bruce was doing, then I can do it as well, because he's out there pushing envelopes in a way that, that really revolutionized comedy. That's what Lenny Bruce did. After seeing Bruce, Mooney becomes a student of comedy, consuming all the stand-up he can. He hits all the clubs to see top comedians like Mort Saul, George Carlin, and Woody Allen. And he watches as black comedians start hitting the mainstream. Dick Gregory, Bill Cosby, Moms Mabley, and Red Fox. I'm young and brimming with arrogance. I figure if they can do it, so can I. Again, here's Ren Brown. Paul loved to laugh, and he also loved being a student. And so seeing all those comedians of the day, the ones particularly who had an intellectual bent, really, really impacted Paul in a very serious way. Serious as ever, Paul gathers together some like-minded Bay Area talents and creates the all-black improv group, the Yankee Doodle Bedbugs. <laughs> I love that name. One of our bedbug routines is my youthful fantasy riffing on how it would be if black people took over. I mean, we would have the African-American Gestapo going door to door. We have Sammy Davis Jr. hiding Brick Eglin in the basement as though she were Anne Frank. <laughs> again, just like in the handbone dance contest, I kill. I learned once again that applause is love. I get the itch, and there's only one place I can go to scratch it. Hollywood. And that's what he does. In 1963, Mooney moves to Los Angeles and joins the famous Second City Improv Group. Through his half-sister Carol, Paul meets Yvonne. It's love at first sight, but Yvonne's only 16. Paul decides she's worth the wait. And as soon as Yvonne turns 18, they get married and start a family. We have our first child, a boy, who we call Shane. Later on, we have a girl, and name her Spring. By the late 60s, America's in turmoil. The Vietnam War is raging, and Martin Luther King Jr. has been assassinated. Again, writer and activist Kevin Powell. What people need to understand is 1968 is the year that the protests happened at the Olympics. 68 is also the year at the heart of the time when Muhammad Ali was protesting Vietnam, losing his heavyweight championship. You're talking about, you know, black men, black people raising their voices in ways we have never seen before. During this time, Mooney meets another up-and-coming stand-up who will become not just his frequent collaborator, but his best friend, comedy legend Richard Pryor. Our very first discovery on this television show is with us, happily so, today. Fine young man, very funny fella with very little effort. And speaking of little, here's little Richard Pryor. Yeah. Pryor gets cast in his first movie, Wild in the Streets, and convinces the producers to hire Mooney as his stuntman. Being on the set is a major learning experience for both of them. Not just in Hollywood filmmaking, but in Hollywood racism. Richard and I encounter set directors on the crew, spraying a substance on the street to make it look like it just rained. What's this shit? <laughs> Richard asked. It's called nigger size, the union guy tells us. Didn't even bother to notice if we were offended. Nigger size? I asked incredulously. Yeah, it's what you niggers size the street with, the crew explains. Richard and I look at each other and shake our heads. It's 1968 in Los Angeles, but it may as well be 1920 in the Deep South. While Richard Pryor's career is taking off, Mooney is still looking for his own big break. He and Yvonne hit the Hollywood nightlife scene in search of those golden connections. They 
have a friend who works the door at the candy store, a private Beverly Hills club frequented by stars like Frank Sinatra, John Lennon, and Elizabeth Taylor. The candy store is a real private club in the sense that you have to be a member to get in. Why am I not surprised when I learn that only white folks are members? It's not only the members who are white, so are all the staffers and waitresses. Chico, the owner, is freaking out because one of his waitresses doesn't show up. Diane says, Yvonne is a waitress. Chico looks over to see this stunning black woman sitting with me. He gives Yvonne a uniform and she works the whole night. At the end of it, Chico is so grateful. I think he's gonna kiss her. After that, the candy store becomes our playpen. I'm there every night on the dance floor. A tall, handsome black guy with movie star looks. I love it when I'm there. But I never forget that outside the doors of that little club, it's Hollywood land, where I can't get my foot in the door. He saw what a racist world. Hollywood was a reflection of all of that. Paul and Yvonne may have succeeded in integrating the candy store, but Mooney knows that isn't real life. Here's Rim Brown again. Paul was not intimidated by the white stardom present in the candy store. The difficulty with Paul in the candy store and Yvonne in the candy store was driving to the candy store and leaving the candy store because they were often stopped by the LAPD. One of Paul's later routines, Paul would talk about, you know, when the white police officer would stop him in Beverly Hills or coming from the candy store, you know, would ask him, you know, what are you doing? And Paul said, well, I'm driving until I run out of gas. In 1970, Mooney finally gets the chance to be funny his way. He gets his first shot at stand-up at Joan Rivers' Ye Little Club in Beverly Hills. Paul's first outing isn't pretty, but Joan sees something in him and keeps inviting Paul back. Joan has comedy in her bones. She knows never to fuck with anyone else's act. Ye Little Club is a free-fire zone. It's like this little oasis of free speech in the middle of the 1970 culture wars. It's not celebrity-heavy like the candy store. Only the hip people know about it. Comedian Sandra Bernhardt remembers the first time she got on stage at Ye Little Club when she was just 19. Mooney came over, looked at me and said, Bernhardt, you're a cigarette come to life. They're going to put you through hell in a pair of kerosene drawers, but you're going to make it. You're going to be big. You're going to be a star. You're going to get everything you want. And from that moment on, Paul became my my mentor, my guiding light, my father, my brother, everything under the sun. Hey, brother, who do the white people say sold the flag? Who's this white woman supposed to sold the flag? Betsy Ross. They're a bitch. Now, come on. They had slaves. That bitch was asleep at six. <laughs> you know some big, fat, black ant was up all night sewing that flag. Oh, child, Lord have mercy. I just saw in this flag. I'm just up so late, honey, I see stars. Well, bitch, put them in the flag and fry me some chicken. After a few appearances, Mooney makes an observation that changes the way he looks at his own act. Right away, I noticed something. The black people in the audience react to me differently than the white people. White people like the killing of the black horse thief. They like the coon talk of the black slave woman. I think a lot of people of color we're also used to being, you know, careful and vigilant about their own place in society. Because white people are very sensitive. You have to remember that. Oh, they kill me with their sensitivity. So sensitive. So when Mooney held up a mirror to some people in the audience, they were like, they weren't ready to make that commitment. I mean, it's a scary place to be. It'll be some won't make this. Oh, they'll get out of here like little white bunny rabbits. They'll hop out of this motherfucker. This lady leaving now. Look at her. She's leaving now. Yeah. I hope when you get home, niggas are burglarizing your house. Good night, man. They can't take it. Comedian Linnell. I've seen a many white person get up and walk out of his show. And I don't know how they got there in the first place. Who did they think they were coming to see? Santa Claus? Paul couldn't care less about that either. He's going to say what he wants to say, period. I think it unmoored people. It shook them up. And it woke them up in a way that nobody ever had done before. And I know when people left a Mooney show, they had a look on their face that 
said they were still thinking about what they just heard. By 1971, Paul is coming into his own as a comic. He joins a comedy troupe alongside Jane Fonda and Donald Sutherland that puts on shows near military bases. It's modeled after Bob Hope's USO shows with one major difference. It's called FTA. <laughs> That's right. Fuck the army. Thousands of people who are in the military are anti-war. They know better than anyone else that Vietnam is fucked up. By now, Los Angeles has surpassed New York City as the capital of the comedy scene. Johnny Carson moves the Tonight Show from the Big Apple to Burbank. And the comedy store opens its doors on Sunset Boulevard. Again, friend and fellow comedian Rolanda Watts. The comedy store is just, that's where so many of your finest comedians got their starts. Mooney performs a midnight show at the comedy store just about every night. By the time he comes on, the crowd has thinned out. He finds that his audience is made up of two types of people, black people and brave white people. <laughs> being a black man in America is like being the fucking boogeyman, and frankly, I'm tired of being the goddamn boogeyman. I am. I get on the elevator, white people hop off, get all nervous, I walk down the fucking street, even inside an expensive hotel. White women grab their purse automatically, all funny, make me feel guilty I didn't snatch the shit. This is the shit we gotta go through. I remember going many times to see Paul Mooney at the comedy store. Author and filmmaker Nelson George. He was famous for like almost a midnight show at the comedy store on Sunset Boulevard for years. Anybody who went to several shows knew that the trick of it was to see how long would it take for him to chase all the white people out of the room. Actress and comedian Sandra Bernhardt came up with Mooney in the 1970s. They became close friends and soulmates. There were nights when Mooney would just go way, way, way deep and, and way off. And I'd be standing in the back. I'd just be laughing. We'd all be laughing our asses off. And he might get into something with, like, you know, either a lady down front, and then maybe she was drunk with some guy, and they'd be, like, you know, spouting shit off. And he'd just, you know, he would just take them apart. And... It was like a deck of cards you just shuffled, so you didn't know what was coming next. Cassandra Williams was Mooney's last publicist. I'd say whatever I want to say, he didn't care. He knew what he was about, what he stood for, how he lived. Again, comedian D.L. Hughley. It was almost like how when Mog Tyson was in his prime, you never really knew what he would do. You could just feel the kind of energy and how he shifted at any moment. It was like that with Paul Mooney. While the comedy store is Mooney's safe haven, it also becomes a source of disappointment for him. He watches as comic after comic goes from the club then on to spots on late-night TV while he is passed over again and again and again. Johnny will have Richard on because he's too popular to ignore, but his producer, Fred DiCardova, blocks my shit. Freddie doesn't want to know me. He hires everyone else in the world, not me. I think he'd have a fucking statue on the show before he'd call me. Again, author and filmmaker Nelson George. The Tonight Show was America's late night show. It was a show that was seen by grandma and grandpa. It wasn't a cutting edge show. So very clearly, between watching his set and then talking to Paul, that this wasn't going to work for mom and pop in, in uh, Iowa. Paul Mooney was a little bitter toward the end there. That, that He was very upset that some of the up-and-coming comedians got far more attention than he did. Like Jimmy Walker, who was at the time on Good Times, and Gabe Kaplan, who was doing Welcome Back, Mr. Carter, Freddie Prince. All of them were getting shows, getting the accolades, the public attention. And Paul felt he never reached that pinnacle, that he never got his own show. Mooney's former manager and close friend, Stacey J. He could have had all the great trappings if he would have just conformed a little bit more to, I want to say, white society or mainstream society. But Paul was never about that. Paul really didn't care about the money. You know, I watched Paul go through thousands and thousands of dollars. That wasn't his inspiration. Paul wants to get on TV so bad he can just taste it. 
but he isn't about to tone down his act to get it. He wasn't ready to play the game, the game that would have to be played with the executives and, you know, sort of like a tap dance. And Paul Mooney wasn't tap dancing for anybody. When Red Fox stars in his own sitcom, Sanford and Son, he wants black writers on board. He pushes NBC to hire Mooney and Pryor. But Paul's writing is too real and labeled by NBC as too angry. Hollywood likes you in a certain way. Yeah, Hollywood's interesting. In this 2008 interview, Mooney talks about the challenges of being black in Hollywood. They like you a certain way when you're black. You damn near have to be a black Anglo-Saxon. They know the difference. You know what I'm talking about. You worked on jobs. You've, you've seen how white people relate to black people that really kiss their behinds. They'll tell you, oh, I love Jane. I just love it. They want, why can't you be more like Jane? Because you can't have a black conscience. It's all right to have a white conscience. Things can be too black, but they can never be too white. They can't be white enough. But the truth that Mooney speaks isn't just targeted at white Hollywood. He isn't afraid to go after his fellow black entertainers just as hard. Here he is in 1993 attacking rapper MC Hammer for doing a KFC commercial. And I didn't think I'd live this long to see a nigga dance for a piece of chicken. I turned on my TV set and saw Hammer dancing for some goddamn popcorn chicken. That's a goddamn shame. Some pop. What is it going to be next week? Watermelon chicken? Is this nigga's mama still alive? He could go to his grandmother's house and get a free piece of chicken better than that popcorn shit. Paul Booney just savaged him. Author and Duke University professor Mark Anthony Neal. This is this idea that you're at now this ultimate point of celebrity, right? You actually carry some cultural cachet, and the thing that you actually choose to do is to do a fried chicken commercial? He could be just brutal, you know. Uh, now, when you when you send a text, you go, you know, JK or LOL, or you give an audience or a person some kind of signal that you're not serious. Paul is the one performer <laughs> that never did that. Some very strange shit for a piece of fucking chicken. If somebody would come in and say, Paul, we want you to do a commercial now. You're going to dance some chicken? I'd stab somebody. <laughs> I'd, I'd be on hard copy. Comedians on hard copy, he stabbed two producers because they wanted him to dance for a piece of chicken. We'll be back after this commercial. It's 1975, the year Saturday Night Live makes his debut on NBC. Lauren Michaels is the executive producer of Saturday Night Live. Lauren knows that the surest way to light a fire under his ratings is to get Richard to guest host. Richard is hotter than a pistol. That nigga's crazy has taken over the world. The new late-night sketch comedy show features then-unknown comics like John Belushi, Chevy Chase, Gilda Ratner, Dan Aykroyd, and Garrett Morris, the only black cast member. In the beginning, ratings are low, but NBC hopes to change that by bringing in red-hot Richard Pryor as a guest host. Pryor's in, with conditions. Here's Mooney's son, Daryl. Pryor was like, I'm not doing the show if Paul is not with me, right? Because he knew when it came to presenting something to America, he knew that Paul had that expertise and he knew what situations to put Richard in to make Richard blast at the optimum level. But the NBC executives aren't having it. It's a no-go for Paul Mooney. Because they didn't want Paul Chevy and them didn't want Paul to do that. They didn't like Paul. They was like, you can't have Paul. Now, NBC thinks Pryor would back down. But Pryor tells them, if you want me to host your new show, I get to bring black writers with me. Michaels and the NBC execs fly to Miami to woo Pryor while he's on tour. Pryor digs in, saying, I don't want white people putting words into my mouth. I don't get Paul Mooney, you don't get me. <laughs> With their backs against the wall, Michaels and the NBC brass agreed to interview Mooney. What he gets is an interrogation. They cross-examine me. How long have you been writing since your mama aborted you, motherfucker? How long have you been doing comedy? 
since your daddy sold your mama's pussy on the street corner, bitch. All right. <laughs> so I didn't say anything that's balls out nasty, but I am pissed. Comedian Godfrey. The fact that he's being interrogated and, you know, it was an interrogation because NBC hasn't worked with black people. And it's just so funny because SNL became number one when Eddie Murphy got on there. I mean, black people made Saturday Night Live number one, which is hilarious. The network has no choice but to surrender. And Richard Pryor becomes the show's first black host. With Paul Mooney attached as a writer. Paul's son, Daryl. Pryor was the first comedian that brought in his whole troupe, man. That, the only black they had on there was Darren Morris. No black writers, none of that. Pryor said, I'm bringing in my writers. I'm bringing in Paul. Landing an SNL gig is a demeaning process for Mooney. But <laughs> he would have his revenge. Paul channels his anger into writing one of SNL's most famous skits. In it, Chevy Chase's character interviews Richard Pryor's character for a job. And I think you're probably pretty ready for this job. We got one more uh, kind of psychological test we always do here. It's just a word association. I'll uh, throw you out a few words. Uh, anything that comes to your mind, just throw it back at me, okay? Just kind of an arbitrary thing. Like if I said dog, you'd say... Tree. Tree. <laughs> What'd you say? Tar baby. Oh, fake. Colored. Redneck. Jungle bunny. Peck of wood. Burhead. Cracker. Spear chucker. White trash. Jungle bunny. Hunker. Spade. Hunky hunky. Nigger. Dead hunky. Richard and Chevy Chase didn't like each other. So the energy you saw in that was real. That whole script, that uh, word play, that was written by Paul. After SNL, Pryor's star is on the rise. And NBC gives him his own variety show, The Richard Pryor Show, which debuts in 1977. Now, once again, Pryor won't do it without Mooney. And this time, Paul gets even more responsibility. Mooney's son, Dwayne. Because Richard gave him the reins, he was head writer, and he was the casting director, and he was Richard's psychologist. That means he had the control of what was being written, and he had control of who was making the paper come to life. For once in his career, Mooney is in control and he makes sure the show is a welcoming place for a broad range of talent, from the OJs to Maya Angelou. When the Richard Pryor show came, that was his time to really create some stars, okay? And he knew the power he had with Richard. His friends at the comedy store, he picked strong known ones that everybody knew, and he picked strong unknown ones. And he put all that together Johnny Witherspoon, Tim Reed, Marsha Warfield, Robin Williams, Johnny Hume, Charlie Hill, and some others. All this talent was incredible. You never saw unknown black talent that was super talented. And it shows to this day, you see where they all, all of them made a mark in the industry, all of them. And Paul Mooney was the first one to put them together. But NBC puts the Richard Pryor show on at 8 p.m. on Tuesdays, a time slot usually reserved for family-friendly entertainment. Now, not surprisingly, it only lasts four episodes. And I don't know why that show didn't last long. Maybe Richard didn't necessarily want to do variety either. Who knows? I don't know. But it was a great show, the things I've seen. Mooney's son, Dwayne, thinks there's another reason the show ended. And the reason why it stopped continuing because Richard quit. Because doing a TV show is serious. It's like being in the military. 
You got to be up. You got to be on call time. You got to be in the writing room. You got to be everywhere. And he just couldn't take the pressure. And he was high, coking, drinking. It was just too much. He would rather be like, okay, let me take a break, rest, vacation. Then let me come back and do my stand-up. But it was just too intense for him. Sandra Bernhardt worked on the show and saw Pryor spiral. You saw him just sort of like, you know, shut down and Mooney would try to keep him balanced and out there. And then suddenly it was just like, it's done. The bottom just fell out. But Paul was the engine on the train and eventually he just couldn't, you know, make it go up the hill anymore. But Mooney keeps pushing. He closes out 1977 with a role in Pryor's film, Which Way Is Up? and plays singer Sam Cooke in the Buddy Holly story. But the roles are small, and Mooney wants more. He gets into business with his wife, Yvonne, opening Mooney's Juices Plus, catering to customers like Denzel Washington and Bev Midler. Unfortunately, that leads to the end of their marriage. But they do remain friends and loving parents to their children. It's a crazy mashup of a family, but somehow it works. My daughter, Lisa, is a big part of our lives. I also get to know my oldest sons, Daryl and Dwayne, much better than I ever did before. The other kids are all crazy about the youngest member of the brood, Simeon, the last child Yvonne and I have before we break up. All the kids have their daddy's show business blood in their veins. Paul continues working with Pryor, getting a small part in his film, Bustin' Loose. <laughs> One of my favorites and helping write Richard Pryor's Live on the Sunset Strip, which breaks records for a concert film, breaking in $36 million at the box office. And finally, in 1982, he gets booked on a new show, the edgier alternative to The Tonight Show, Late Night with David Letterman. Comedian David A. Arnold. When Paul Mooney got his break and appeared on Late Night with David Letterman, that was big. It was validation for him. It was a way for him to be accepted into the mainstream of comedy, especially when you do anti, anti-white, anti-establishment material. Not only has Mooney found the late night spotlight he craved in 1985, he earns an Emmy nomination for writing on the kids' show Pryor's Place. But he's still living in Richard Pryor's shadow and seems destined to be stuck behind the scenes. His son, Daryl, thinks Pryor could have done more to advance his father's career. Here's a big thing, man, a lot of people don't know about. Do you notice that Pryor didn't put Paul in his movies? Like, he'd put him in Which Way Is Up. You would think that he would be in his movies longer and he would be actually co-starring. And one time, Richard Pryor was producing a Paul Mooney album. They did it in the uh, belly room at the comedy store. This was prior at the top of his game when he was like the number one box office, the number one comedian, the number one sex symbol. He was all of this at one time. The most powerful black man in Hollywood. They recorded it, it was brilliant, it was funny. It was super funny. But Mooney's dream of an album with his superstar best friend hits a roadblock. And then all of a sudden, after everything is done, it never came out. And that hurt Paul. Why won't he put me in his movies? Why won't he uh, come out with my album? Why won't he do these things? Because Pryor, I believe that Pryor was a bit threatened and jealous of Paul. Comedian Pierre isn't so sure. I don't know if there's any truth to that, but I can understand that. Uh, a lot of people have people around them that they want to keep in a certain position. It was like almost like a Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen relationship. But he also had to understand that Richard didn't have that high self-esteem within himself. Although Richard was a great comedian, although he was a great talent, he didn't have great esteem. But Mooney may have felt Pryor didn't do enough to help him. He does get a boost from a huge star who invites him on tour. It was 1987 and he was opening for Eddie Murphy on the Lord Have Murphy tour. And I remember him talking about racism and so forth. And I was like, I've never heard a comic talk like that. I was like, oh my God, this guy is talking about stuff that I feel and I understand. Even now, you know, I was a young cat, 19 years old. Eddie Murphy came out after him and Eddie Murphy did his thing. And I, I enjoyed it, but I walked away remembering Paul Mooney. 
1990, Mooney is hired to write for a new sketch show created by Kenan Ivory Wayans. In Living Color is a daring show for the new Fox network and launches the careers of Jennifer Lopez, Jim Carrey, and Damon Wayans. Paul Mooney creates one of the show's most iconic characters, Homie the Clown. I don't think so. <laughs> Homie don't play that. Of course, Damon Wayans presents Homie the Clown in a most brilliant and genius fashion. But you know, Paul's mind is so present in the character Homie the Clown. Paul's entire conversation offstage was always peppered with the use of the word, oh, homie, homie, please, homie. Oh, for real, homie, homie. In 1993, over two decades since making his stand-up debut, Mooney releases his first album ever, Race. Bill Stepney was a producer who only worked with music acts, but his wife begged him to check out Mooney's comedy. I show up one night to check out one of Paul's, you know, just late night soliloquies. I was, uh, I was floored. This Paul Mooney was a whole nother experience. And, you know, I, I sort of stopped in my tracks. Bill signs Mooney to his label and releases Race in 1993. You know, they will let white folks make a movie about any goddamn thing. Look at Hollywood. Scissor hands. Give me a fucking break. Somebody is on crack. Somebody's smoking a pipe at the studio. Somebody at the studio is smoking crack. Scissor hands. Throw mama from the train. Only white folks can throw their mama from a damn train. And it's a hit fucking movie. Ain't that some crazy shit? Throw mama from the goddamn... What's the other thing? White men can't jump. They don't have to. They own the team. Some white man is at bank right now. Ooh, my niggas are jumping. Oh, jump, nigga. White daddy make you jump. Jump. Oh, jump. But I knew they were crazy when they let them make Driving Miss Daisy in the 90s. Driving Miss Daisy? Fuck Miss Daisy. I will walk before I drive some goddamn Miss Daisy. This is the 90s. I'll drive that bitch to alley and rob her. I will do a carjack. Miss Daisy would be on the fucking bus. She fucked with me. More emboldened than ever, Mooney follows up race with his second album, Masterpiece. Taking on everything from Ricky Ricardo to Michael Jackson to O.J. Simpson. The infamous Bronco Chase happens right as Mooney's recording the album. <laughs> I'm actually not even supposed to be out because I'm under a doctor's care. I just left my lawyers. This has been going on for three weeks, and I'm on the heavy medication because I'm suing O.J. Simpson's estate. <laughs> for stress. <laughs> oh, I've got headaches. I've flashbacks. <laughs> uh, this O.J. stuff is too much for me. In fact, I have to just thaw out and relate to you guys because all of you look like O.J. to me. I am OJ'd out. This is much too much. I've had headaches, anxiety attacks. I've got to get some money. I, 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 I have a case. No, I, I've been watching all this on TV. Because, come on, brothers, you know, when they chase one nigga, they chasing all of us. I was talking to the TV. Run, nigga. Run! Run, nigga, Run! When O.J. turned himself in, I was so happy. I said, now nah, I can get some goddamn sleep. <laughs> he had the gun up to his head. I said, nigga, please don't kill us. Things are finally going Paul's way. But in 2001, tragedy strikes. My darling youngest son, Simeon, is murdered. The kid who shoots him. Somebody he knows and hangs out with. Later drives to Las Vegas, checks himself into a hotel, and commits suicide. When a child of yours dies, you join a very exclusive club. The only ones who really understand are those who have had this particular tragedy before them. It's pure torture. 
the whole family is emotionally wrecked by it. I am only glad that Mama, my dear Mama, is gone so she doesn't have to feel the pain. She passes away the year before in Oakland, and I'm at her bedside. Suddenly, it seems I am surrounded by death. His love for that kid and the shock of losing him was just, it was too much. Paul was one of those people that just, he just kept going. But I know that day to day, that was something that really shattered him deeply. For the first time in his life, Mooney finds himself at a loss for words. Nothing feels funny anymore. It's the most difficult time in my comedy career. I have to work. I have to support my family. But I feel as though I'm two separate people. Mooney at the microphone and Mooney who has to live his life in grief. Despite his grief, Mooney forces himself to keep working. In 2003, Dave Chappelle creates a new sketch show on Comedy Central. Mooney is hired as a writer and performer. I recognize what it is right away. It's got an informal, just friends hanging out at a party vibe and a familiar edge to it. Chappelle's show is done as if Playboy After Dark collides with the Richard Pryor show. Mooney saw in Dave Chappelle that ability to just go for the jugular. You know, and Mooney always saw the genius and the originality in performers that nobody else did until they exploded. After his experiences with NBC, Mooney makes sure Chappelle knows if he's coming on board, he's going to be funny his way. I lay out my conditions for him right away. I've been in this business too long, I tell him. I can't get into another bullshit situation where I have producers and executives picking apart my shit. I won't let them fuck with your stuff, I promise, Dave says. The show is a sensation and Mooney finds a whole new generation of fans. In classic Mooney style, he isn't afraid to go after anyone, as he does in his reoccurring skit, Negro Domus. Here he plays a black version of the legendary prophet Nostradamus offering answers to life's most unsolvable mysteries. So please, America, make some noise for Paul Mooney as Negro Damas. Why is President Bush so sure Iraq has weapons of mass destruction? Because he has the receipt. Next question. I give Chappelle a lot of credit for recognizing the legacy Right. Of black comedians and where poor Mooney fit into that and creating a space for him in the largest platform that, you know, Paul Mooney was ever going to have, right, to essentially be Paul Mooney. But once again, Mooney has to watch from the sidelines as Chappelle goes on to achieve massive success. D.L. Hughley thinks the reason Mooney never reached the same heights as Pryor or Chappelle is because of one thing. Mooney. I'm certain that Paul wanted fame. I don't think anybody does anything as well as he did it and not hope to go to the next level. That's foolish to believe that. But I think that he knew that he didn't have enough of another Paul, another gear to do it. I think he knew that there was a part of him that would always be in his way. Paul Mooney lived life on his own terms with breakthrough moments. Integrating Hollywood nightclubs, writing for iconic TV shows, helping create comedy superstars, and forcing America to confront its views on race relations. But in 2014, Paul is diagnosed with prostate cancer and later develops dementia. Watching Paul Mooney be ill-affected by dementia was very, very painful. As a friend, and as an audience, but particularly as a friend, because Paul was so razor sharp and so brilliant, was very, very painful to watch. You know, Eddie Murphy took a break. Richard Pryor took a break. They all take breaks because they go do movies and they go do whatever. He never took a break. He was always doing stand-up comedy. His movies that he would do and the TV he was do, those were breaks, but comedy was always ongoing. 
till the day he lost his mind with dementia that he couldn't perform anymore on stage. Paul's dementia was just, it just undid me. When you can't pick up the phone and call your friend directly anymore and they pick up and go, Bernhard, what is going on, Bernhard? You know, I mean, that's, it's devastating. On May 19th, 2021, at the age of 79 years old, Paul Mooney passes away. Paul was either way before his time or way after. And I think that he will be remembered as a man and a human being and an entertainer who was unflinchingly, unassailably authentic. I think Paul Mooney would like to be known as someone who was honest, who was actually a caring person. I think he'd be proud of what he said and what he did. I don't think he has any regrets. His legacy is going to continue to be the kids. The kids are going to make sure dad's name never dies. Paul Mooney's legacy is a great contributor to all generations of comedy. I think as a writer, as a performer, as a person that, you know, motivated all of us to truly find our voice. So when I think about Paul Mooney, I think about all the nights I sat in that audience watching a true, true legend, a true craftsman at work. He wasn't always trying to say something funny. He was always trying to say something. And some of us listened. It's one thing to be funny, but if you can combine the funny with the smart, oh, you've hit gold. I think Paul would want to be remembered as the cutting edge, gorgeous, fashion plate, light, fun, crazy, brilliant, social commentator and, and, and mentor that he was to so many people. There's an energy missing from the planet because Paul generated that kind of beauty and honesty and vision that nobody else had. I'd never seen a light in anybody that the, the likes of Mooney. And we're just really blessed to have had that kind of depth and, and relationship that we had. It's a damn shame. It's a damn shame. We've got to fight back. We've got to fight back. We've got to stick with our shit. We've got to stick with our beauty. They can't tell us what's pretty. We know what pretty is. This has been funny my way. Check out more episodes profiling other groundbreaking comedians only on Audible.